We always think we know what's best, don't we? We like having control and input over things, over our own lives. Um, As I uh, get to, uh, used to do this a lot more, now there's just a couple of companies, one namely that every week that I get to go into and talk to employees and even though the owner is sitting in this room uh, that I think is an intelligent man, uh, it's how often his employees think they know better than he does. <laughs> and we often think that way, don't we? In our, in our jobs, in our homes. In our homes, if I had the children raise their hands, don't do this this morning, kids. But if I had them raise their hands, if I was asking them the question, how many of you this week got into a confrontation or an argument with your parents where you still think you know better than them? Don't raise your hand. I think we would have a lot of children who'd be raising their hands this morning. This is just a microcosm of, of how we live. And sometimes the problem whether you're an employee or whether you're a child or whatever position you may be in, sometimes you're just not seeing the whole picture. You know, I think about government things and I think about Congress and the Senate and our legislators and how many times that we can sit around having breakfast or in our homes or with other people and we just know better than they do, don't we? But so many times... We're not seeing the bigger picture. We're not seeing the bigger goals. We're not seeing the bigger aims. We are so short-sighted as people. And this is, what, this is how we try to parent, right? That for some of you this morning, for some of you kids, if you had the opportunity to get a tattoo right on the middle of your face, that would be a wonderful, great thing. But you might regret that when you're older. You see, history, if we think about it in these words, if we think about it in these terms, our history as a church, our history as the people of God, is a history of short-sighted people. If we were to go all the way back and think about when God rescued His people from the land of Egypt, And brought them out to the wilderness. And he told them, I am taking you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And that these people, when they were in captivity, they saw the mighty works of God through the plagues that transpired. That moved in Pharaoh's heart for him to let the people go. And then as they were being chased out and this massive army was chasing them, God parted the Red Sea. And then once they got through, God destroyed their enemies. That you would think, if you were a part of this group, and if you were a part of this generation, that you would have this just awe of who God is. This awe of His power. This awe of His plan. And that as we sang this morning, that you would only trust Him. But we see these people in the midst of this, in the midst of seeing the display of God and His greatness, That all it takes is for Moses to go up on the mountain to meet with the Lord. And they turn to idols because they get scared. Or what about some of the great 
military victories in the Old Testament. That we look at people like Gideon who took just a few men and, and, and had these great defeats. Or the walls of Jericho where they just had to blow trumpets and the walls come, trump, come crumbling down. But if you've been reading in your Bible reading plan with us as we have read through um, the book of Judges, as we are in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, that you see that the people, instead of trusting and leaning on God, they get their eyes focused on other things. Their vision becomes blurry. Their vision becomes blocked. And what happens? They lose faith. They lose hope. They take matters into their own hands. Consider our text. Where we've been. Last week, we talked about Jesus feeding 4,000 people. That He was literally creating fish and bread and feeding people. He was literally doing this. And His disciples... These 12 men, when they get into the boat with him, just after this wonderful miracle, they look at Jesus and they say, we only have one loaf of bread. And Jesus, Jesus, as he's trying to teach them through this metaphor, just keeps leaning on them and leaning on them and they just don't get it. Let's look again at some of the verses we covered last week, verse 17 and 18. And Jesus, aware of this, the fact that they were discussing they had no bread, said to them, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Verse 21, do you not understand? The problem was that Jesus, the Messiah, the sovereign King of the universe, was right in front of them doing these crazy miracles. And the disciples just weren't getting it. Something was wrong with their vision. Something was wrong with their sight. So that when they get into a boat and only have one loaf of bread, they just completely miss everything that's going on around them. You see, this is speculation on my part. But I think I'm right. As we're heading into our text today, it's interesting that you have the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus speaking to these disciples. Then we have this, this, this situation, this proclamation of Peter. And in the middle of these two things, just happens to be, Mark just happens to give us an account of a blind man. And there's some interesting things about this account of this blind man that before we get into our account of, of Peter and his confession that I want us to see. And the, and the first thing that I want us to see is that there is a shift occurring. There's a shift occurring in this, this narrative that Mark is giving us. And there's, there's three phases that Mark pretty clearly lays out in his gospel. 
And the first phase is Jesus's ministry in Galilee. That's where we have been. That Jesus, for the most part, has been in Galilee. He's going around. He's been doing these miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's teaching. And by and large, the crowds are not buying it. The last phase that we will see in the Gospel of Mark is the is, is the passion narrative of Jesus and the cross and the events that take place and Him raising from the dead. And in this middle section is Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And in this middle section as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, what we see is Jesus turning towards His disciples and teaching and pouring into them. We, we're going to get a lot of wonderful teaching from Jesus in this section. So this shift is occurring and I want you to notice it in the text. Look at verse 26 and 27. Or, I'm sorry, back up. Notice in verse 23, they had come to Bethsaida and they, the blind man was brought to Jesus and they implored him to touch him. And then notice what Jesus does. Jesus, it says, taking the blind man by the hand, he took him out of the village. Not only did Jesus take this blind man out of the village to be healed, but then look at verse 26. After this man was healed, he said he sent him home saying, don't even enter the village. What in the world's going on? Jesus heals this man. He takes him outside the village and then he tells him, don't go back. And then in verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That Jesus left. That what we see and what I think that Mark is showing us in this healing of this blind man is that this Ministry shift is occurring. This ministry shift is occurring. They are leaving, leaving Galilee. That Galilee was not seeing who Jesus was and Jesus is leaving. But there's something else odd about this miracle. And again, this is speculation. But I think I'm right. Notice what's odd about this. So they came to Jesus and they brought this blind man and, and they wanted him healed in the normal means. The normal means of Jesus healing someone is he just touched them or they touched him. Remember the woman who had the had the blood disorder? She just touched the hem of his garment and she was made whole. They brought this man to Jesus and just said, Jesus, if you will only touch him, he'll be made well. And Jesus touched him, but he didn't heal him. He took him by the hand, took him outside the village, and then notice what Jesus does. He doesn't do this anywhere else. He brought him outside the village. He spit in his eyes. He laid hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them as trees walking around. He's partially healed. What's going on? Did Jesus not charge his batteries? Did Jesus not get a good night's sleep? What's going on? Maybe this blindness was so intense that it took Jesus two touchings. Have you thought about this? So what happens is Jesus spits in his eyes. He lays his hands on him and he partially sees. And then in verse 25, he laid his hands on him again. And he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. What I believe is going on in this text is that Mark is giving us a metaphor for what his disciples, what Jesus' disciples are going through. That his disciples are seeing 
They're seeing Jesus, but they're not seeing Him as clearly as they need to. And I think that's the point as we get into our text this morning. Last week, as we talked about these disciples, we talked about that these are men who are being formed. They're in a process of being formed. And we see this happen all throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to see this continue, these men being formed. And the question for them and the question for us and the question all throughout the book of Mark is when you encounter Jesus, are you going to trust him? Are you going to see him clearly? And the information that you have about Jesus, what are you going to do with it? How is it going to affect the way that you live? And as we get into this text this morning, it seems like these disciples are off to a really good start. Notice the question. Jesus questions the disciples in verse 27. He said, who do the people say that I am? What's interesting is in Luke, the wording is a little different. In Luke, Luke says, who do the crowds say that I am? Isn't this interesting? Think about it. You have these men that were literally passing out fish and loaves to the crowd. You have these men that were literally probably serving a little bit like bodyguards for the crowd coming to Jesus. You have these men that we know that they, they picked up the, the, the remnants of the broken fish and the, and the bread. They picked it up into baskets amongst the crowd. And you can only imagine as Jesus was doing all these things, as Jesus was performing these miracles, that this crowd was abuzz with who is this man? Who is this man? And for weeks and weeks of, as we've been studying this gospel, one of the things that we have continuously seen in the Gospel of Mark is that the crowds aren't getting it. And as the disciples answer for the crowd, what we see is why. Notice what the crowds say. Jesus says, who does the crowd say that I am? And they say, John the Baptist, Elijah, or maybe a prophet. What's the theme? The theme in all of these answers is this. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. In fact, all of the people that these crowd, this crowd says that he is, would be people who were forerunners for the Messiah. They were making a very clear distinction that we think this is a godly man, someone maybe even from God. He's doing great miracles. You know, they're not like the Pharisees and Sadducees who are saying he gets his power from Satan, but they're saying, oh, maybe this is the forerunner of the Messiah, but this is not the Messiah. You may look and say, John the Baptist, really? Think about the imagination of this crowd. Think about the imagination that has to be in place 
to believe what they were believing. And you're saying, Lewis, what do you think they were believing? Well, Mark tells us in chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, verses um, 14 through 16. Jesus was going out and casting out demons and healing sick people and telling people they should repent. And King Herod heard of it. Verse 14. For his name had become well known, Jesus's name, and people were saying, listen to this, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah and others were saying he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. And I think what this shows us is that the extent to which people will go to deny that Jesus is the Messiah because proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah has consequences. And if you're not willing to lay down your life and follow the Messiah, which is the only natural conclusion of coming face to face with Jesus and recognizing who he is. The only natural conclusion is to lay down your life and follow him. And if you're not ready to do that, then you have to come up with some sort of explanation for who he is. Because him being the Messiah has consequences. Now notice. Notice what Jesus does next. He goes from who do the crowds say that I am? And this is a very pointed question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. This is emphatic. This is personal and this is direct. And Peter gets it absolutely right. And this is a huge monumental moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples that the disciples got it. They got it right. They look at Jesus and they proclaim the right thing. You are the Christ. This is the first non demon in Mark to correctly identify Jesus. This is so big. That in the other Gospels, in the other accounts where this takes place, we have Jesus saying things like this. Blessed are you, Peter, for on your confession, I am going to establish my church and the gates of hell will not pervade against it. This is absolutely huge. Now, we don't get that in this text. And I think this is another example as Peter is the one to whom Mark is from whom Mark is getting his information that Peter doesn't want to glorify himself. But the point that I want you to see is that this is massive and has massive implications. It's monumental. It's so big that Matthew says correctly. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And doesn't that make sense? That the crowd The Pharisees, the Sadducees, as they're using their reason, as they're using their logic, as they're trying to deduce who 
this man is that they miss it. And what we have is evidence that God has been at work in the life of these disciples. Their eyes have been opened and they see Jesus for who he is. And the question that I have for you this morning. And I think the question that Christ would have for you this morning is who do you say that he is? Maybe, just maybe, as we've been going through this series in Mark, maybe God has opened up your eyes and for the first time you're seeing Jesus as the Messiah, sovereign king of the universe. Don't you wish the text just ended here? Don't you wish the text just ended here and we could celebrate, sing some more songs and go home? Because I think what happens next is what we see in Peter. I think we see in our own life. Notice what happens next. Things take a turn. And we see that Peter's vision, the disciples' vision, is not as clear as it needs to be. It's still blurry. It says in verse 31, He began to tell them, to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus proclaims the gospel message to the disciples. And it tells us that he plainly told them. Verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly. (laughs) And what happened? What happened? Peter had a different vision of the way that the company needed to be operated than than Jesus did. Peter was seeing things from a vantage point that as Jesus was talking about suffering and dying and being put to death, that it didn't jive with Peter's agenda. It didn't jive with the way, the worldview that Peter had, the way in which he thought that things should go. And so what Peter does, and isn't this amazing, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. He told Peter. What you are saying is satanic. Let's don't miss what Jesus is saying. And let's not sugarcoat it. Get behind me, Satan. 
For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. What were Peter's intentions? Have you ever thought about that? He had good intentions. He didn't want Jesus to suffer. He didn't want the Sadducees and Pharisees to to put him to death. He didn't want Jesus to die. He had a good heart. Good intentions. Good motives. But the words that came out of his mouth provoked a rebuke from Jesus to the extreme. This kind of takes me back in my thought process. As I've been looking at this and discussing this text with some folks, it takes me back to my thought process a little bit of where Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan. And as we think about Jesus being tempted in the desert by Satan, Satan really didn't say anything that was that bad, did he? I mean, he said, hey, look, you're hungry, Jesus. Turn the rocks into bread. That would be a miracle. You could kind of show how great and powerful you are. Turn the rocks into bread and eat. Or or what about this one? Jesus, throw yourself off the cliff and let the angels rescue you. You can show your power that even the angels care for you this much. Or, Or the last one. Notice Satan's plan for Jesus. You can have it all. You can have all the kingdoms of this world. You can be the king of all the kingdoms that are and that will be. And Jesus rebukes Satan. Why? And how are these two things related? You see, when we look at this text... One of the things that we see a similarity between is that the crowds wanted to use Jesus for their own personal gain. Satan, of course, wanted to use Jesus for his personal gain. And the worst thing in the world for Satan would be Jesus going to the cross and dying and raising from the dead. Peter, in thinking he knew better than Jesus and His plan, promoted satanic lies. In this false narrative of Jesus, we can have it all. You can make bread out of nothing. You can heal people. You can cast out demons. We can have it all as long as you don't go to the cross. But who gains anything if Jesus doesn't go to the cross? Who gains anything if Jesus doesn't go to the cross? Not the crowds. They're still in their sin. Not Peter. He would still be in his sin. And not us because we would still be in his sin. You see, the plan of God was much greater than any plan 
that anybody else could have for Jesus and anything or any person or any power that would try to persuade Jesus from His ultimate mission of redeeming mankind and reconciling reconciling man to God is satanic. You may see this and you may say, yes, Lewis, I get it. I see this in the text. But one of the things that we may not see so clearly is that there are many churches that are still putting forward this lie. There are many thought processes that are still putting forward this lie. And I don't think I'll step on any toes this morning. It's okay if I do. Because it needs to be said. But there are many churches and there are many movements that I think are going forward with a satanic worldview. The easiest to pick on would be the prosperity gospel. At its worst, the prosperity gospel, and I I need to say this more accurately, the prosperity gospel is saying that the true aim of Jesus is for you never to be sick and to be wealthy and to never have hardships in your life. Now let's pause for a second. Does Jesus care about your health? Yes, He does. Jesus has been healing people all in this book. Does Jesus want you to have enough money to be able to support your family and to to do things? Yes, that's not the point. The point is that when we boil down the Gospel message... To the aim of the gospel being for you to be healthy and wealthy, that is satanic because it's no gospel at all. You're still in your sin. Another satanic version of the gospel is the social gospel. And this is very prevalent in our day and age as well. And at the core, at its worst, at its worst, the social gospel puts forward that salvation is freeing people from structures and oppression so that they can be free in this world. So salvation is the is the reality that Jesus came to set you free in this world and that any structure or person or power that is out there to hold you down needs to be eradicated. Now, does Jesus want you under oppressed societal structures? No. Should we fight for injustice against injustice? (laughs) Yes. But is that the gospel? No. The problem is that where the gospel is absent, 
people die in their bondage to sin. And the bondage to sin is way worse than any bondage that we could have in this world. And isn't this Peter's vision? Isn't this what Peter was promoting? When he's going to Jesus and saying, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Who's going to heal people? Maybe in Peter's thought, he might have been thinking, who's going to overthrow Rome? Who's going to tear down the terrible oppressor? (laughs) And you know, Satan's okay with this plan. Satan's okay with this plan as long as the true gospel is not being presented. So, one of the things that's fascinating when we talk about other churches and other movements is it gets pretty comfortable unless we're in the midst of all that because we can kind of say, yeah, we're not going to one of those prosperity gospel churches or we're not going to go to one of those social gospel churches So we're pretty comfortable, but then I want to bring it home because this is what I think Jesus would have us do and say, how about your life? How about your life? What is our life proclaiming? What is the aim and goal of your existence? As Christ has come, have you proclaimed with your mouth and with your heart that Jesus is Lord? But do you still have a problem and shrink back When you realize what that means. That your life is not your own. That Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, has a plan for your life. That God, as he saved you, as he opened your eyes to who his son was, and as you put your faith and as you put your trust in him, That God brought you into His family for a purpose. And the purpose is displaying His beauty and His majesty and His greatness. Or, as you hear this, do you kind of want to pull Jesus aside and say, Oh, wait a minute. I've got some other plans. See, our world and our culture are dominated by these satanic forces that want us to give up on following Christ. What we need is a clear vision. A clear vision. One of the things that I just have had a hard time imagining until I really think about it and then I just say, oh, because it comes back at me is this reality. Can you imagine actually pulling Jesus aside and telling him he doesn't know what he's talking about? When you've seen all these things and you put, oh, Jesus, let me correct this a little bit. Come here, I'll help you out. 
how often isn't that what we're doing? Because one of the things that, as you'll hear next week as Gary is preaching, and I'm not going to dip, dip too much into what he's preaching next week, but Jesus is not like some, uh, some of you are too young to remember this, like a vacuum door-to-door salesman. These salesmen that would go door to door and they would sell these vacuum cleaners and they were kind of hucksters and would, you know, uh, finagle their way in and take your money or whatever. Jesus tells you right up front what the cost is. Do you notice that? In these next verses that Jesus says, here's what's going to happen to me and oh yeah, here's what's going to happen to you. So Jesus tells them right up front what the problem is. The problem with Peter and the problem with the disciples and the problem with us is that there is a significant part of Jesus' message that we miss. I can only imagine the part of this message that Peter missed was when Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. I'm victorious. And for us, We live the Christian life so much of the time in this like burdened, heavy, like I'm picking up my cross and following Jesus. This is so horrible. You know me, I hate it sometimes. Some of the old hymns drive me crazy because the way that the music goes, it's like dreary and ugh. What we're supposed to see is Christ. And He is so great. And He is so wonderful. He is so majestic that when we see Him, following Him becomes our joy. And so the problem is, is when our vision is focused on this world and the things of this world and the gains of this world, then our vision becomes satanic. Because we fail to look up and to see this great Savior. Because when we see Him for true, He truly is. Our mouths say things like this. Oh God, You are my God and I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in your sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Church, how you, how me, how this little flock on Signal Mountain could be revived, could be revived if we could see Him for who He is and only trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that You would enhance our vision of Your Son. That we would see your son for who he is. That every time that our temptation, the temptations become to look at this world as the end in of itself. As the goals of this world become the dominant theme of our thinking. 
that God, Your Word and Your people would call us to look up. Would call us to see clearly who You are. God, I am thankful that You touch us over and over again so that our sight can become more clear. I pray that You would do that this morning. All of this is only possible because of Your Son, who You sent so that we could see Your glory and be saved. It's in His name we pray. Amen.